in situations where I felt uncomfortable, I would often like imagine myself like a character in a movie. So when I walk in down the street, am I Yasmin Abdelmajid, the you know student doing mechanical engineering, or am I a knight who's undercover and walking with this like wild soundtrack, you know? And I'd be like, oh my god, this is that point in the movie where she has to make that really hard decision, but then everything changes. Tell yourself in your mind that you're whoever you want to be, you're whatever character, and then take power from that. It's easy to stand in a crowd, but it takes courage to stand alone. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the One Foot in the Sink podcast. My name is Anis and Foz is here. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. And it's the stylish Yasmin Abdul Majid. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Hello, my friends. Muslims. Muslims. Muslim lifestyle podcast. What do you think the podcast is about? I think it's about Muslim because you put your foot in the sink when you do a do. It's about a story called the Ghostbusters. So Foz, are you the kind of guy who stands out in a crowd? I'm very much the guy that blends in. That's why I'm on a podcast. <laughs> what about you, Yasmin? I don't think that I go out of my way to stand out, but I... You know, it just it happens that I wear a large turban and I prefer very bright colours and I'm relatively tall. So standing out tends to happen by accident most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got the charisma as well, so definitely. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you guys ready for this week's opening question? Yep. Bum, bum, bum. Hope you all have your answers, unlike me. So this week's <laughs> opening question is... You have been given some special Lego, which you can use to build anything imaginable. What do you build and why? And as usual, I'm going to start with Foz. Okay. So for my answer, I'm going to tell you a little bit of thinking behind my answer. So recently I took my son to like a Lego store and they had this cool new tech, like augmented reality. So all you have to do is you take this box to the screen and the camera picks up the box and it it shows you the actual Lego (laughs) and all built and it was all interactive and it's all around you. It's really, really cool. So my son was picking up every single box he could pick up, taking it in front of the screen and he was seeing how it looks um, in real life. And my favorite box from that was Star Wars, the Death Star. <laughs> it's funny because my son picked up the box and he could barely lift it. He was like, his hands were all over it and it's a huge box. He took it to the screen and it looks amazing. He's got this big Death Star on the screen. But yeah, I would make the Death Star. I'll come and blow it up. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a pretty epic Lego situation. When you said you can build whatever you want in the world, I mean, I'm an engineer, right? So like, um, I'm usually like, oh, the things that I can build, like, or the things that I imagine I think I can actually build, I can be like, okay, there, there's various materials that I'd like to use. But if I get special Lego that I could use to build anything, I'd probably be a bit metaphorical and I'll build an alternative system of government to democracy. Bum, bum. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or like a different form of economy, like whether something apart from neoliberal capitalism, just because I'm curious, but I'm not sure if that totally fits the question. <laughs> <laughs> so who's going to be who's going to be the ruler of this alternate universe of yours well see this is the question do we even need one i don't know i don't know maybe we need whole different paradigm shifts that's why you have to build a parallel system ba, ba, ba. what about i be in charge we won't call it a leader <laughs> i like that you're just like well if no one's going to be in charge then i'll be in charge <laughs> yeah clearly i would be in charge because the logo is mine you can see the system's gone corrupt very quickly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Already, already. Oh man, amazing. See, that's a cool answer. <laughs> it's all right. You know, we can just like Lego pieces break apart very quickly, so we can just you know dismantle force Lego force. Wow, that's that's deep. That is yeah. Deep. Like Anise is, is all about just taking me off the picture and just you know, get rid of us. I'm just about destroying Lego from, from what I've just been saying the last couple of minutes. It's pretty bad. I apologize, listeners. I can't wait. I'm not I like can't wait to hear your answer now. I literally just thought about it on the spot after you talked about your augmented reality. So I'm going to create a clone of myself. <laughs> so using that AI and augmented reality stuff that you talked about earlier for us, I'm going to like, you know, build me in a Lego version, a real life Lego version has like, you know, it'll be like a robot type of Lego. 
and then all the mundane jobs that I don't like doing, like going to work, <laughs> Lego and Nice will go and get everything done. And then more creative stuff that I like doing, that'll be me. So that'll be, that, that'll be my um, special build. So but you need to take care of that Lego and make sure it doesn't go into any accidents. It'll be all over the place. Like your hand will just fall off and like, oh no, how do you so get that? So I can just put new ones on and I can always upgrade <laughs> my hands and, you know, change my outfits and yeah, there's lots, endless possibilities. They are endless. Okay, so I think we've done with our opening questions. So I'm going to move on to introduce our guest today. Yasmin, thank you so much for coming onto the show. No worries. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Before we begin, so I'm going to quickly read out your profile. You're an author, a broadcaster, and an engineer. You have played an active role from a young age in raising awareness about minorities, diversity, and empowering young people to make positive changes in their lives and their communities. You have been on the TED stage where you talked about unconscious bias. The video currently has over 2 million views. You have worked on oil rigs and write new for newspapers such as The Guardian. You frequently appear on TV and radio. You have written two books. The first one was called Yasmin's Story and one is just on the way, which comes out at the beginning of March, which is called You Must Be Lila. There's so much on your profile we want to uncover further during this episode. Um, so in today's show, we want to talk about your story, breaking barriers, and standing out from the crowd. So, there's lots going on there, Yasmin. There is a lot. Thanks for having me, everyone. No, no worries. So, let's make a start. So, tell us about yourself, where you're from, your family, your upbringing. Yeah, no worries. So... Um, I was born in Sudan, in Khartoum in Sudan, East African girl. Um, my family is, I guess, a mix of, like, if you were to, to really break it down, my dad's family is originally Egyptian. My mum's family is a mix of Sudanese and a bunch of other things. And I think we're a classic kind of Ottoman Empire, Mongol mix. So I often say that I'm Sudanese, but I'm a reflection or a, a product of the Ottoman Empire. Um, my family moved to Australia when I was about a year and a half. So we were the second Sudanese family in Brisbane. There were not a lot of Sudanese in Australia. It just like people, people in Sudan were like, why would you go there? Like it's so far away. And it really was like in the <laughs> early nineties, we moved in 92, like pre-internet, you had to make like a, you know, it was $5 per minute to call home or whatever. So it really did feel like a world away. I went to a Muslim primary school, a Christian ecumenical high school. Wow. I started wearing, yeah, I started wearing the hijab when I was 10. I sort of, I was like, I'm a big girl now, you know, I'm 10 years old. Mm. I'm starting the hijab. It just so happened to be a couple of months after September 11. So people were wow. like, are you making a political statement? And I'm like, I'm 10. I don't know what a political statement is. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why you're looking at me like that. Like, I'm just trying to be like my mom here. And yeah, and I think, you know, the act of, of wearing the hijab so early um, politicized me in a way, you know, plus the combination of, you know, and every young person who's Muslim and grown up in the diaspora will relate to this. You know, we've grown up in a really politicized world as Muslims. I was somebody that always spoke my mind um, and I was like a young hijabi girl. People wanted to, to hear what I had to say. And um, so my, my childhood was pretty political. I, you know, joined Fair Go for Palestine when I was 12 or 13. And it was around the time, I think there were, there were conflicts going with Lebanon and Israel and a bunch of things. So I started, you know, getting really heavily involved in that. And then I guess, you know, as I grew a bit older, I, I was trying to search for my mode of change, right? Did I want to be someone who mostly went to protests? Did I want to be someone who ran a big business? Did I want to be someone who had their own company? Like I was, you know, trying to figure that out. And then when I turned 16, just after I turned 16, I ended up going to a conference. So I got involved in lots of different organizations and ended up going to a conference called the Asia Pacific Cities Summit. So there was 100 young people from around the Asia Pacific and they were all kind of curious about the world and, you know, change and all those sorts of things. And lots of them were involved in different organizations, but lots of them you know, we're competing. They were competing for the same sorts of funding. They were competing for volunteers, all this sort of thing. And I remember being 16 and being like, why are we all competing with each other when we're all trying to do the same thing? Mm. Is there not, you know, an opportunity here to pool our resources and to somehow work together? And most people were like, yeah, that's great in theory, but it's really hard in practice. Um, you don't know how hard it is to start an organization. You know, you don't even know what you're talking about. And of course, I didn't have any idea what I was talking about, but I was a stubborn teenager. So at the age of 16, <laughs> I started this organization called Youth Without Borders. 
And the mission of Youth Without Borders was to empower young people to work together to you know, create positive change in their communities. So we tried to bring organizations together to make things happen. And we ran fundraising concerts. We ran, we helped bring nine different organizations to together to build, set up mobile libraries in Indonesia. We ended up running a big wow, engineering camp. Yeah, alhamdulillah, for, you know, young kids from, from disadvantaged backgrounds and working class backgrounds across Australia. So, you know, we were just a bunch of teenagers who thought we wanted to do something. And, you know, this was also a time before, like, really before Facebook, before social media was a huge thing. And so if you can imagine, like trying to do this stuff was, it was really grassroots. Like you had to meet each other all the time every week and find ways to connect with people that wasn't on by the internet because not even, not everyone had equal internet access, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was a really good grounding for my sort of grassroots and, and advocacy and career. At the same time, of course, what was happening was I needed an actual paying job you know, according to my, my migrant parents. <laughs> and I was in love with motorsport. I loved cars. I loved Formula One. I loved making things go fast. I loved driving really fast. So I decided that I wanted to work in motorsport. I joined my university's race team, race car team. Everyone, when I when I used to tell people that I ran the race team, people thought I meant like the race Running. team. No, like they'd be like, oh, so it's you and a bunch of black people talking about race. And I'm like, no, 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 no. it's me and a bunch of, it's me and a bunch of white guys. Um, and they all call me mum, right? It was really bizarre. <laughs> so that was great. Yeah. And I, I designed the chassis for the car and we competed at wow. university. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And then I actually, I came to the UK to do some work experience and eventually ended up getting offered work experience with Mercedes F1. But I, didn't it was an unpaid internship and my you know we didn't have the capacity to pay for me to mm. to not you know be paid yeah. and you know this is also something that you know lots of industries make it hard for people to break into because they don't pay so i went back to australia and i was like well i'm going to i'm going to need a job and i ended up on the oil rigs so that's kind of what led me to working in oil and gas. There's so much there. Before we go into the, or, or <laughs> yeah. I had just some some questions about the earlier because like I just don't want to touch off this subject. You were 16 and you set up an organization called Youth Without Borders. <laughs> like, who does that at 16? <laughs> Someone who's not allowed to do anything else. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I was a guy like I'll go to bed. Okay, I'm thinking about. Okay, what am I going to do on the football field tomorrow? I want to try this <laughs> skill, I'm going to try that skill. And you're there setting up a youth organization. And what is it about your upbringing or your character that you feel that's helped you mm. be that person? Like, that's going to, oh, I can do that. I'm just going to go do it kind of thing. It's a really good question. And I think what's great about the question is that you've asked what contributed from my upbringing. Because I think, and, you know, my first book is, is mostly about growing up in Australia. And most of it is about my parents. Like I really owe an incredible amount of who I am and what I have the capacity to do to my parents and the messages that they brought us up with, right? Because because it's hard being a migrant, right? It's hard building yourself up in a completely new society. And there are different ways you can go about it. You can make your children fearful of the world. You can make your children fearful of change. You can want to hold on really tightly to where you came from. And And I think I mean, obviously the dynamics were different because my parents chose to leave. Like the government was changing in Sudan. It had just changed. It had made life very difficult for my parents. But alhamdulillah, we weren't refugees, right? And so it wasn't like they were forced out against their will. They chose to go build a, a better life somewhere else. But I was so lucky that they chose to do that in a way that was really like empowered, in a way that they told us as kids, like, you can take the best of both worlds. You know, you can with the grace of Allah, do anything you want to, right? Like, mm. and I feel blessed that I didn't have, my parents didn't have low expectations. They had high expectations. Like, we, sh we should be able to do anything. You know, it's obviously, it took some convincing for some of, for my parents to believe that this was something I could do. But I think generally when I came to my parents with an idea, they'd be like, okay, cool, show us that you can do it. And if you can show wow. us that you really care about this, then we'll back you up. It's the same with my Formula One career. Like for ages, they were like, oh yeah, this is this is a, this is a phase, hmm. right? And then I joined a Formula One, like then, sorry, I was like out here saving money so that I could go work in the UK. I was out here running a race car team. Like all of these things clearly indicated to them that I was taking this seriously. Yeah. Um, and so I think the fact that my parents gave me the space to follow my dreams was massive. But I guess, you know, I think I also really, I think I, I, this is like a, a big part of my psyche generally is like I just have faith 
alhamdulillah like you know i just believe that allah gives us skills and if he's put me in a situation where you know maybe i can make something happen then i should just trust that if it is meant to happen it'll meant to happen you know and i don't believe allah gives us anything more than we can handle and so i'm out here you know handling my business because i know <laughs> that like you know it's within my capacity alhamdulillah and 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 i guess what ultimately is the thing that got me to start youth without borders was my mom asking me once or, or really saying to me she was like yasmina one day you will be stood in front of your lord and he will ask you i gave you these opportunities i gave you these chances i gave you these skills what did you do with it how did you make the world a better place with all these gifts and opportunities that i've given you and i just want to have a good answer Alhamdulillah that's so cool I love that that's an amazing mentality to have yeah and you know what I love about your story Yasmin you went through all these experiences and typically you would not see a woman let alone a hijab wearing muslim mm. women in these spaces <laughs> like in formula 1 when you watch formula 1 mm. on tv like how many times can you see women on the race teams or I, i've yeah. been to oil rigs and i see like there's there's no women there you know it's all like a rough neck basically yeah literally you know just from your stories like you've want to do something you just put yourself out there and you just got it done that's what i love about this story thank you do you know what it is and is is cuz all the hijab wearing women are wearing helmets <laughs> no, it's true. No, listen, it's true. Like the guys did not realize I was Muslim. Oh, really? See? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a bunch of them were like, "Are you wearing that for like occupational health and safety?" <laughs> But they thought I maybe had dreadlocks or something and I was just like wrapping it up for safety. I was like, "No, son." <laughs> it was so funny. I definitely they were like, "Why aren't you eating the meat?" Are you a vegetarian? I'm like no worse. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> that's a good it's a good segue into um kind of continuing your story because then from that you then went to this oil rig like how did, mm. how did that all happen and what was the experience like we're just talking about now but really standing out and one being mm. a muslim but also being a woman in this very male orientated situation how did you deal with it and what were the key things from it? Yeah, I think so. I was really young when I started working on the rigs. Like, I didn't feel young, but I certainly was. I was 21. I was 20 when I got the job, 21 when I started on the rigs. And, you know, I don't think I thought about it too deeply because, you know, I I had been coming from mechanical engineering, which is very male dominated. I was one of seven girls and 300 guys. And, you know, previous to that, I was doing design and technology and graphics at school, and they were all subjects that were really male dominated. So, I'd been in male dominated spaces for a really long time. What that kind of meant though, was that I I kind of forgot that I was different, right? And I felt like I was just one of the boys, right? When I was at school and when I was at university, I you know spoke the same way, acted the same way, whatever. And so I just figured it wouldn't be that big of a deal when I got hired. They were like, "You're the first woman in our department in Australia." I was like, "Yeah, cool, whatever." Like, <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. Right? Like I genuinely didn't think anything of it. And then I got to the rigs, and the thing about the rigs is that it's not just people that are like me, right? There are all sorts of different people. People from, you know, backgrounds and communities that I have never interacted with, really. you know um and guys from all over the world and guys who are the my grandfather's age my father's age you know so so the yeah. the dynamic was not the same as the dynamic with me and the guys at university right and that was a key difference because you know at least when i was you know at university i could kind of get away with you know we're all kind of from the same community so it's not that bad but all of a sudden now i'm dealing with different generations i'm dealing with different ex social expectations and you know the thing is right i thought the fact that i was muslim would be the biggest deal maybe the fact that i was like a person of color but just the fact that i was a woman was the thing that really tripped them out because there are there are lots of muslims in oil and gas right muslim countries have lots of oil and gas and so <laughs> lots of arabs lots of egyptians lots of nigerians that kind of thing but women no and certainly not muslim women and and so a lot of the guys their reactions were kind of like we don't know what to do with you like you know you would either be sexualized right and so mm. people would like look at you as a sexual object or you know someone who they want to marry or whatever mm. or you were like infantilized right so you were their daughter their granddaughter or whatever yeah but it took a long time to be seen as a true equal right as somebody who had i would not go onto the rig and be straight away deemed competent 
I'd go on to every single rig and have to prove myself, have to prove that I knew what I was doing, have to prove that I could handle myself, right? And so that, because my first job was in like a contractor role, I was constantly going to new jobs, new rigs, meeting new people. Every single time you go onto the rig, you have to prove yourself. But I mean, I guess I was very used to it and I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed the challenge of going into spaces where people thought I was incompetent and showing them that I was really great. And sometimes it was exhausting. Right. And sometimes I was like, why am I putting myself through this? But it was an adventure. And I think the theme that runs through my life is that I like an adventure. (laughs) Are are there any stories you remember from those moments? Um, Lots of different things would happen. So like, I remember when I first started, my first colleague ever said to me, he was like, you know, Yasmin, you're the first woman I've ever worked with. Like, are you going to be able to lift the tools, right? And I was like, mate, you're you're a Filipino man, half my size. I can lift you up, right? So like, I like lots of people were genuinely like worried whether I'd be able to physically do the job. I'd get that kind of question a lot. Are you able to? Are you able to handle this? Most of the rigs didn't have female facilities, right? So I would have to like use the shower block that the men used or use the bathrooms that the men used. And they didn't really think about that, like maybe, (laughs) especially because I'm like a hijabi woman, I'm not going to be out here in my towel, right? So like, and I know you're both men and this might not be something that you relate to, but having your periods on an offshore rig is one of the most uncomfortable thing in the world because there is nobody on the rig to ask if you need black spare supplies, right? Like you're just, you've just got to make sure that you take all your supplies with you and you get 15 kilos of luggage to take for a month, including all of your uniform. So you better be prepared, right? So like it was (laughs) was just a world not designed for someone like me. They weren't designed for vegetarians. I ate pasta for about two years straight because that was the only vegetarian meal that people knew how to make, evidently. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) it wasn't all bad, right? Like I, I had some also really transformative interactions like um you know speaking to guys who on the surface would be people who you would think would have racist or xenophobic views and find out that you know they were married to a muslim fijian and they'd actually converted to islam themselves like that actually happened loads of times loads of these guys i would look at them and i'd be like you don't know anything about the world i'm from and they were married to like a muslim woman and had converted to islam or you know I remember talking to a bloke once who was maybe like in his late forties and you know, and, and you're sitting in a in a shack in the middle of the ocean, just the two of you, and he tells you about his life and he tells you about his fears and his insecurities and his worries about how if he's bringing up his kid properly and his worries about being home enough and blah blah blah. And you know, these men who don't often have people to talk to yeah. who are in this hyper masculine environment. All of a sudden, there's this woman and, you know, and I'm not out here like and the way that I presented myself was as I tried to be as professional as possible all the time. So like I'm I'm not a, a threat necessarily, although some may have seen that it was, you know, an opportunity for them to make friends with someone who was a bit different. And I really valued the fact that, you know, these men from kind of all parts of the world would eventually find me a safe enough conversation partner to be open and honest. And I felt really, really privileged to be in that space. Like not everyone gets to see that side and not everyone gets to the opportunity to have empathy with men who, with men full stop, but also with men from very, you know, diverse backgrounds, whether it's working class, whether it's ex-military, whether it's ex-penitentiary, you know? Yeah. So, alhamdulillah, like, I think it was an experience that I needed to have because if you're going to do really transformative social change, you need to be able to have empathy for all sorts of people. Yeah, that's so true. That's a good little segue into what we want to talk to you about next is a TED talk about the unconscious bias. You went on a TED stage and it's a really entertaining TED talk because you have like an outfit change every like <laughs> every like couple of minutes there. Could you just talk to us about like, you know, the topic, why you chose to talk about that particular topic? Yeah, sure. It was really interesting how that came about. So I had never really kind of gone into the space of unconscious bias, but I'd been asked to do this talk and I was going to meet the lady that was helping me write, like sort of prepare the the topic area, right? And that morning I had gone out and caught the bus and come home. And I went back out, caught the same bus, but I wore my hijab differently, right? I wore it from, I changed it from like a turban to like the regular kind of like Arab style hijab. And the bus driver treated me differently. Wow. And so I got to this meeting 
And, and like a number of people on the bus treated me differently. And it was just small things. But I remember I got to this meeting. I was like, look, you know, I had this completely other topic that I wanted to talk about, but I just need to get something off my chest. It's so annoying that I can literally sh- change the way that I wrap this same cloth, the same cloth, and people will treat me differently. I've not changed. And the woman was like, you need to tell that story. Well, yeah. I was like, that's ridiculous. She was like, yeah, you do. And then I thought about it and I was like, wow, actually – yeah, the outfit that I wear completely defines how people see me. And once you take that little kind of, you know, that seed of a thought and then you start looking at the broader kind of context, you're like, oh, wow, so much about how we treat people, you know, because we're social creatures, so much of that is based on assumptions and unconscious bias that we all have. And look, unconscious bias, for those who don't know, they're essentially the the shortcuts that our brains make. And some of those shortcuts are helpful. Like, you know, if you see red, it's hot or it's dangerous. But some of those shortcuts are not based on evidence. Some of those shortcuts are based on like things that we hear in the social world, things that we hear in the press, you know, in media, on television, whatever. And so people will have biases against Muslim women. And it's like, how many Muslim women do you actually know? How many people who wear a niqab or a burqa do you actually know? Why do you have this opinion on them when you haven't gone and done your own research, right? So most people's biases and prejudices are not actually properly informed. And so that's kind of why I decided to to look at the topic of unconscious bias. I wanted to firstly confirm whether my experience was something that was statistically significant. Mm. And secondly, start to look at how we can challenge it, right? As individuals and as structures. And that's yeah, that's kind of where it came about. And and then my 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 action was really funny too, because I actually practiced the speech with the guys on the rig (laughs) before I did it. And I gave this like long, and the guy was like, "Yeah, that's great, Yasmin, but why should I care?" He was like, "I don't, I don't care if I have bias." And I, I was floored. I was like, <laughs> "What do you mean? Like to be a good person?" He was like, "I don't really care about that. I'm just worried about my my my, my ex wife taking the house, you know, like that's the thing that worried him." And then I was like, "How do I convince someone like him to care about this?" I was like, "Okay, man, do you believe that the world should be fair? Like, do you think that everyone should have an equal chance?" And he was like, "Well, yeah, obviously." And I was like, well, if we want to build that world, then we have to tackle this challenge. Like all of us have to be a part of it. And I would not have included that if he hadn't pressed me on it, if he hadn't been like, why, why? Like, what's the point of challenging unconscious bias? And like, you know, when I talk to corporates, I'll tell them that, you know, like diversity is really important because you'll make better business decisions because, you know, you don't want to have groupthink, you don't want to have blind spots. But ultimately at the end of the day, for, for me, it is a moral imperative. Do we want to help build a world where the circumstances of your birth do not dictate your future? Then if so, then we have to tackle every single obstacle that's in the way. And the biases that we have are a huge part of that. That's so interesting. After moving to the Middle East, <laughs> I realize there's a lot yeah. of bi- people have a biases. Like you can have a bias on the entire nation just based on like mm. a stereotype. Um, what can we do? Because... I think I may have an unconscious bias as well. But what can we do to try to get rid of them? Because they are really mm. frustrating sometimes. Like, you know, you think about, I don't know, let me give you an example. Like, you know, you think about a certain country and you think like, okay, stereotypically this country is known for like the people are known for doing X, for example. Mm-hmm. How do you stop How the unconscious bias? That? Yeah. It's really, it's a great question. I think the first thing, the first really important thing is to really understand your bias, right? And like acknowledge that it exists and then find out where it comes from. So like, you know, has your bias against, you know, Sudanese people come from 10 different people who worked in Sudan? Has it come from one interaction with a Sudanese person? Has it come from what people say about Sudanese people? Whatever it is, like really, and, and try to define what is the bias that you have? Like is the bias that oh, you think a Sudanese person is going to be late or is going to be, whatever? <laughs> like what is that bias? Right, I mean, because that's probably true. Um, <laughs> I'm so like literally. <laughs> wow, I just realized how true that is. <laughs> wow, for context, I came to this podcast really late. Wow, okay, that I really, I really did not do the stereotype well there at all. Um, <laughs> so, first thing is to acknowledge it, and then the second thing, I think, is to look at you know what processes can you like if it's in a company point of view, there are ways to mitigate it. But if you have as an individual, if you're trying to ch- challenge your advice as an individual, the thing that I say to people is that your experiences 
can inform your expectations, but don't let it dictate your expectation, right? So you might have had 10 different experiences with like a Sudanese person or an Indian person or whatever, right? And you'll be like, okay, based on this information, all the Sudanese people I know come to every meeting late, right? I can therefore assume that maybe the next person will be late or I can be like, you know what, there's a possibility that might happen, but I'm going to keep in mind that there's also a possibility that that might not happen and I'm not going to expect that it will happen. Right. Because the and I know this is kind of getting a bit esoteric, but like the expectation of something kind of shuts off the possibility, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So like I'm not saying completely disregard any experience that you might have personally had, but always bear in mind that what you think might be real might not be real. And try to whenever you feel those biases come up, try to challenge them. Or look for examples that go up against that in order to be like, well, actually, the evidence doesn't prove that to be true. Um, it yeah. is quite exhausting. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say that it's, it is an easy process. But also, if you want to take an Islamic view to it, right, like we are always told to give people, you know, what is it, like 72 excuses when they mm. make a mistake. There's this amazing verse in the Quran, which is like, which I will not be able to remember now, but it essentially says like, why don't you forgive others in the way that you want me to forgive you, right? Yeah. And so I think from an Islamic point of view, the way that I've always tried to think about it is how can I be as generous and forgiving to others as I wish Allah will one day be for me? That's true, yeah. That's a good point. That's a very powerful way of thinking of it. I'm I'm curious as well, so like what kind of reaction and feedback did you get after the talk? Because my own personal experience with that talk, it was, like one, it was very entertaining just watching it. I was hooked from the start. And then two, the, the message was so powerful. I remember it even now, like I watched it quite a while ago, but I still remember it even now. And I'm curious, like what was the feedback like? How did people react to it? Alhamdulillah, it was amazing. Like, I think it's a talk that now gets used in universities and schools, and I travel around the world. Like, it essentially kick-started an entire different career process for me, or a career path, where now I, I work with companies all around the world. I've spoken about it in 20 different countries, alhamdulillah. And, you know, and now it's an area that I, I do a lot of reading in, and I do a lot of communicating about. Like, I'm not out here necessarily doing the cutting-edge research, but I'm looking at all the research that's done and being like, this is what people are seeing. And these are ways that we can mitigate against it. Alhamdulillah, like I think it has genuinely had impact, which, you know, if it's the only thing of impact that I ever, ever done, then, you know, then it's something, right? Like I, I'm very, mm. very grateful for the opportunity for that talk to have happened. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. And so I guess this, the, the other question I had on the list, how did you go from being on a rig to doing a TED talk on stage? Like, <laughs> there's a gap there for me. I mean, you've got to remember that I was still running Youth Without Borders. Oh, yeah, yeah. Side, right? So I was doing this side hustle. I was on that. My rig was my day job. And then I was going away, you know, running Youth Without Borders, you know, doing speaking, writing articles and blah, blah, blah. And so in the community that I was in, I was starting to become known, I guess. And they were like, hey, you might have an interesting story. What do you reckon? And that's honestly, that's how it came about. And and how did I end up writing a book? Well, I ended up, I was blogging about my time on the rig. And then somebody picked that up and asked me to write an essay. And uh-huh. then the essay got picked up and somebody asked me to write a book. And so honestly, like my life story really couldn't have happened in the way that it did if I hadn't ended up working on an oil rig. Yeah, well, alhamdulillah. You mentioned that the TED Talk was the transformative period in your life where your essentially your side gig became your main thing. Mm. So where, where did you go from there and where did you end up after the rigs? So I guess, uh, let me think, how do I, what direction? So I wrote a book around the same time. Um, well, I wrote a book while I was on the rigs, essentially. And then when that book came out, I started touring with the book. And in order to kind of get the most out of that experience, I took it, you know, a year leave without pay, right? And I was like, I'm just going to take a break from this rig stuff. And then kind of opportunities started to pop up, right? I ended up hosting a national TV show in Australia on our equivalent of the BBC. I, I recorded a documentary and, you know, started doing other bits and pieces, started to publish more and more pieces in mainstream publications. And so started to then become a, a voice in, uh, certainly in Australia, that kind of talked about issues relating to women and people of color and, you know, social change, etc. Um, social justice, I should say. And 
kind of off the back of that, like a couple of big things happened. And, um, you know, one was a video, one became a video, which I'm sure some of you, you know, if you're listening at home, you might have heard or seen the video of my argument with Jackie Lambie. So I had a, a yeah. run in with a Australian politician who essentially kind of wanted to ban Muslims and ban Sharia and ban the broker, et cetera, et cetera. And I just kind of, yeah. I, it was the end of a long month. And I was just mm. like, I am so sick of hearing this. And I, and I just channeled all of the like frustration that years of yelling at the television had pent up in me. Right. And I just said, what well, I think many people have said, yelled at the television screen, right? You don't know what you're talking about. And so that then kicked off a long series of, or, or essentially a campaign against me by the Australian media and politicians. And then obviously there was a, a Facebook post that some people might be aware of where I very kind of innocently talked about, we have this day called Anzac Day and the, the thing that you say is less we forget. And on that morning, yeah. I thought, what else should we not forget? And so I wrote in brackets, Manus Nauru, Palestine, Syria. And off the back of that, you know, the outrage continued and it continued for about a year. And if you want to talk about transformative experiences, that was definitely a, the, the other one that has kind of gotten me to where I am today. So it, it got to the point where it was no longer really feasible for me to live in Australia. Um, I couldn't get any work. I had to move house. It was a bit unsafe, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I decided to relocate to London and start a new life. Yeah. So there's a lot of lessons there, I think. And it was a big thing in your life. And I don't think anyone should be under any impression that, you know, like the way you described it, you know, I moved to London, I moved house. Um, but like as a person, you know, like to go through something like that on such a huge scale, there's like a huge weight on your shoulders personally. And I'm thinking some listeners might be going something through something like that, you know, just on a smaller personal basis, you know, they might be getting attacked online or they might have said something and they regret it. And how did you deal with that? You know, is there anything from Islam that got you through or is there anything in your life that, you know, when you look back at it what got you through that yeah look i mean i definitely i talk about it kind of blasely but that is certainly not to minimize the gravity of what happened i think in terms of the the things that got me through or the the way that i dealt with it i guess the first was always this deep belief that everything happens for a reason and you know allah's always got a plan and and also that you know that you're never given more than you can handle Right. And you might not know yeah. that you can handle it. You might not feel like you can handle it. But if you just like for me, I just had to keep reminding myself that you are never given more than you can handle. And it might not make sense, but it will one day. And it might not make sense, but it will lead towards something that does. And I think coming back to those things that I truly genuinely believe helped me through. And so it's such a hard experience to communicate, I guess because it was so overwhelming. But in terms of, you know, I know lots of people have said things they regret or feel the pressure of community or feel ostracized from their community for any particular yeah. reason. And I think what I would say to that is that one of the other things that kind of happened was that I had to kind of look within me and say, what are the things that I care about? What are the truths that I care about? And block out all of the noise, right? Because everybody will have an opinion. Everybody will have an opinion. And you have to decide what opinions are worth listening to. For me, at the end of the day, I I have to live with myself. So I have to listen to my opinion, like like actually genuinely listen to my opinion, my own opinion, and be like, Ismina, what is it that you actually want? What is the thing that you're working for in life? The thing that I work for in life, I'm trying to build a world where everyone has equal opportunity, a world where, you know, the, as I said, the circumstances of your birth don't dictate your future that's the world that i believe in and i believe in challenging those in power who would think otherwise right and who would discriminate and ultimately if that's what i'm about i mean and yes doing so with empathy and doing so with generosity and trying to build a cohesive society well as long as what i'm doing is aligned with that then the rest of the opinions don't matter and as long as what i'm doing is aligned with what you know my belief is and that belief is in Yorobana, then then everyone's opinion doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the only being that I have to justify anything to is Allah. At the end of yeah. the day, only being that I have to justify myself to is God. And so you learn to find your own way. And that is hard. That is, I think, possibly the hardest thing because it is so much easier. It's not easier, but, you know, it's, it's you get swept away. You get swept away in people's opinions. You get swept away in the the worldliness and the ego and all of this stuff. 
But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself what matters and focus on that. And then khair, inshallah. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. It is. And going through something like that, that really can shake your faith. Like other people might react very differently to the way you do. So I think you should be commended. Like if you've got such things going on in your life, you've got such weight on your shoulders and... You know, to keep your faith and to have that faith in. Otherwise, you know, some people might just question what is going on. And Alhamdulillah, you know, you've stuck through it and look at you now. You know, you've got so much going on. And it's, it's a good segue into maybe um, <laughs> your book. So you've written two books now. Um, could you tell us a bit about those, especially your latest one? Sure. So Yasmin's story is kind of like, you know, my the sort of my first memoir, it talks about life growing up, it talks about working on the oil race, it talks about running a, a race car team, it talks about youth without borders. And it was really like my life pre all of the drama, right? Very much so. So it's a really lovely kind of innocent look at also kind of looking at pre and post nine eleven and those those experiences. Um, my second book is actually young adult fiction. So it's called You Must Be Leila. Um, and it's a character, essentially, it is a young Sudanese girl growing up in Brisbane, right? So you could be like, is that your autobiography? Is that like an autobiographical thing? And I'm like, no, it's actually just writing myself or someone like me into a role because I grew up not reading anyone like me in young adult fiction. So this girl, you know, she, she's a young hijabi. She started a new private school on a scholarship. And it gets into a fight with the chairman's kids <laughs> and then has to like prove herself right back to earn her scholarship back essentially. So it's kind of about, and she's really funny and she's like, she loves adventure, but she's got a mouth that sometimes says things before she really thinks <laughs> about it and she gets in trouble all the time, you know, and she's just trying to figure herself out. She's trying to figure who she is. She's trying to figure out if she should forgive this guy. You know, she's, she's also just trying to like, you know, be a teenager so it's kind of all of those things. So that comes out. So they're both published by Penguin Random House. And I'm just starting to work on my third book, which is uh, looking at the intersection of ethics and technology. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> they're all very different. Yeah. Yes, means keeping it fresh. Yeah. You know what I'm saying, man? You can't be, you can't be caught napping. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to move it on to our tips section. So... What we want to ask you is like, you know, Yasmin, you come across as a very charismatic and a very confident person. Like the type of person that when I walk into a room and, and I see you, like I know you have arrived, you know, like stylish, very fashionable. <laughs> that you know. is that is a thing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like for someone who's quite introverted or someone who wants to be a bit more confident mm. or, you know, stand out more, what tips can you give them to allow them to break out their shell a little bit and mainly like to speak up? Mm. You know, sometimes you, you want to say stuff, but you can't say it. And, you know, you, mm. you're, you're, you're a very good person to look up to. So what kind of tips would you have for people like that? This is, this is my little secret, right? When I was a kid, I read a lot of life fiction a lot of fantasy a lot of sci-fi a lot of whatever and I just always imagine myself as different characters right so when I walk in down the street am I Yasmin Abdul Majid the you know student doing mechanical engineering or am I you know a knight um, who's like undercover um, and walking with this like wild soundtrack you know blah blah so like in situations where I felt uncomfortable I would often like imagine myself like a character in a movie right and I'd be like oh my god this is that point in the movie where she has to make that really hard decision, but then everything changes. Do the thing. You know <laughs> what so I mean? So cool, yeah. So you just, yeah, imagine that your life is a movie. Dramatic music in the background. Yeah, exactly. Put it on your headphones. Like, me- like make your life the drama that, you know, we all watch on Netflix or on, you know, or in the cinema. Because why not? Like, why not allow ourselves to be dramatic? So I think, like, that's, that's one way that I've always done. I've told myself stories. Last year, for example, I was like, man, in five years time, you look back and this will be that moment, that blah, 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 blah. Because, <laughs> you know, it helps you survive. We all tell ourselves different types of stories, but you can have some fun with it. You know, tell yourself in your mind that you're whoever you want to be, you're whatever character, and then take power from that. And also, uh, I remember this quote a long time ago, which I really loved, which is like, don't tell God about your problems. Tell your problems to be afraid of your God. Yeah, that's so cool. Right? You're like, oh, you think, you think you're going to be a problem for me. You should see the God that I have in my corner. Right? Like, <laughs> this, this guy over here, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you got the best backup in town, son. Yeah. So, like, 
I feel like what can go wrong if you've got a lot in your corner? Again, it's like really good, strong faith you have, like Alhamdulillah. I can just imagine you just being like walking down the street and all of a sudden you have that, you know, thought in your head and then your, your, your swagger just you know changes I mean? and then you start bopping down yeah. the road, you know. Like, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I am that person that is singing to themselves like, mm, mm, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like this person is actually mad. Do you know what? I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. You know, when I go to work, yeah, I'm going to use that now. I'm going to like, you know, roll in like with a little swagger and then see, see people's yes, reactions. that makes me so happy. Which character are you going to be from your stories, Anise? Uh, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be, you know, Scarface when Al Pacino, when he does that walk, you know, when he's made it, yeah, he's walking up like yeah. button down and like chest up. Channel through, that, yeah. man. Yes. Yeah. That is what's up. I love that so much. It is quite interesting, actually. Like, it's kind of like from your childhood, right? Because when you're younger, mm. you used to do that. I used to think I was He-Man when I was, <laughs> when I was a little kid. And he used to be there the, you go. Yeah, exactly. And like... I used to have the confidence then like, to do anything I wanted. It's, it's a really, really good, interesting... The world beats it out of you, but yeah. you don't have to let it... Bring He-Man back, Foz. Bring him back. Yeah. Yes. I'm working on it. I'm going gym. <laughs> Wear the outfits as well. <laughs> i got a bit of work to do that first. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, okay, we're going to move to our not-so-quick-fire round. So, just so you're aware, we always say quick fire, but <laughs> you can expand if you want to. So, the, fir- sure. the first question we've got is, if you could choose one book to give somebody, what would it be? Oh, raw. Muslim or non-Muslim? Any, like, yeah, whatever you think. Uh, you know what? There's a book called Tuesdays with Maury. Have you ever heard of it? No, I can't see it. And it's a small book, Tuesdays with Maury. It's um about this conversation, this guy had with his dying teacher and it's just I don't know why that book came to mind but it's just a really lovely book and this teacher was kind and poetic and gave him all sorts of like dying man wisdom and one of the lines that I always remember from that book was um everyone knows that they're going to die but they don't believe it that's why we're so shocked when it happens Hmm. we all know we're gonna die right but somehow we delude ourselves into kind of thinking it's not gonna happen and so we 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 operate in this way and, and we're shocked whenever it happens. We're so, well, it's like it was going to happen, right? But, you know, we, we kind of live in this sense of delusion. And I that that's a line that's always stuck with me. Wow, that is quite powerful. On that, I just remember something. Like when I was growing up in England, one of the things, um, the way I was brought up is try to go to the cemetery. You know when there's like a, a burial, try to go there and take part. And try to get there a little mm. bit early so that the grave that's dug up, have a look inside and just reflect, say that one day that's where you're going to end up. So, mm, wow, that's deep. Yeah, it's it, it was like this practice that was instilled in, in us. But then even if when you do that, you kind of normalize it. Like, you know, you always have this thing like, yeah, it's going to happen to someone else, not going to happen to me. Mm. Yeah. This story just reminded me after what you just said. But there we go. That was deep. Yeah. So, making it a bit more light-hearted, the next question is, what's your, <laughs> can't believe we're doing this now, what's your most memorable fashion purchase? <laughs> um, well, I, oh, this is a really, you guys, this is a really hard question. Um, but I do have, I watched, have you, know, do you know the, the film Coming to America? Oh, yeah, man. Of course. Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay, so in Coming to America, there's this really, like, they wear this really kind of weird-looking crown. Like, it's just yeah. got these, like, it just looks like a fake crown, right? It looks so dodgy. Anyway, me and my friend re-watched it recently. And then the next day we went shopping and there was this hat that looked like the crown from Coming to America. It's just, like, this black wide-brim hat. It's so extra. <laughs> and it's got all these, like, crystals, like, randomly on it. They're, like, Swarovski crystals. It's so extra. And I was like, I need that hat. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, it's my coming to America hat. <laughs> you need to share a picture. You need to wear it and put it on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I'll upload a photo and I'll upload one with the coming to America crown. Yes. <laughs> it's so funny. Okay, next question. You're going away for a long weekend. Besides your essentials, what top three things do you pack? Bluetooth speakers, noise-cancelling headphones for the flight, 
there's a lot of audio equipment. Wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And maybe my, I mean, they're called yoga pants, but I don't do yoga. My like running tights because they're super comfortable. Yeah, that would be, those are my practical tips. (laughs) Cool. Uh, The final not so quick fire question is, what is something you can do, but not many people know you can do? Touch my nose with my tongue. Whoa. How many people do you think are trying to do it right now? Yeah, everybody. Everybody. A bit of needs to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it. I can do it. I know I can do it. It was, it was my party trick when I was in primary school. Nice. So before we come to a close, just want to find out, I mean, what's next for you and where can people find you? All right. So people can find me on the internet. I'm at Yasmin underscore A. So Y-A-S-S-M-I-N underscore A. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, on the website. You can Google. So my book's coming out. You must be Layla at the beginning of March 2019, inshallah. You can also, I co-founded this thing called This Much I Know, which is a news platform on Instagram. I'm no longer involved in that, but it's really cool. So you can follow it. It's at This Much I Know Global on Instagram. And keep an eye out because I've got a couple of other projects like low-key happening, but they'll be announced soon, inshallah. So, yeah, we look forward to hearing about those. Um, I'll add all the links to the stuff that you mentioned onto our show notes so people can find them easily. So thank you so much for coming on. But before we let you go, we have one final question. Mm -hmm. And the final question is, what do you want your legacy to be? Right, you're just going to drop it like that. That's it. That's our style. (laughs) (laughs) Just before you go. Um, Inshallah. If I can leave the world an example of someone who tried to build a better place through kindness and empathy, then I will be very happy, inshallah. Inshallah. That's great. Inshallah, you can achieve that. And thank you so much for mm-hmm. coming on. It's been amazing hearing your story. It's been very inspiring for me personally, just hearing, you know, the stuff that you've been through. What kind of stuck out for me, you know, you've always kept, had such a, such a strong faith, no matter what you've been faced with. And you're encouraging people to be more diverse, to think widely. So, Jazakallah for all your efforts and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Bye. Hey, before you hit the stop button, If you like this episode, why not head over to our podcast page at onefootinthesink.com or wherever you get your podcast from and listen to our past episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast. We're on Apple, Android and Spotify. Thanks for listening. If you like the episode, make sure you leave us a review or get in touch with us at info at onefootinthesink.com. I'm Foz. And I'm Anise. And you've been listening to One Foot in the Sink podcast.